Good morning. I trust everyone had a blessed Thanksgiving. We certainly have much to be thankful for spiritually and uh, materially. Uh, We celebrate every day. We give thanks every day, do we not? Because every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. I trust it was a blessed week with family and turkey and whatever else you applied yourself to. And uh, I invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 10, and follow along as I begin reading in verse 32. Again, that's the book of Mark, chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the 1700s, there was a man known as Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. I believe that's how you say it. Zinzendorf. A German nobleman, uh, part of the aristocracy. And Zinzendorf was born into a position of prestige, a uh, position of power, a position of notoriety, a position of wealth. But by the time of his death, he had pretty well turned his back on it all. He had given away much of what he owned, and he had expended himself in the service of Christ. What brought about the transformation in the man? Because by his own admission, there was a season in which he was very much preoccupied with the wealth and power and status into which he was born. But something happened, something changed, something radically altered, whereby he ended up giving himself in the service of others in the name of Christ. 
He attributes it to an experience that he had when he was 19 years of age. Up until that time, he'd been hearing the proclamation of God's word. He was well saturated in the scriptures. And so the spirit of God was already working upon his soul, softening that uh, hardened heart. But he entered, entered, entered into an art gallery. I think it was in Dusseldorf. And in this art gallery, he saw a painting called Ek Homo, E-C-C-E-H-O-M-O. That little express, expression, Ek Homo, is the Latin translation of John 19, verse 5. When the Lord Jesus is brought out after his trial, and Pilate presents him to the crowd, and he says, Behold, the man, Ek Homo. And so Jerome in the uh, 3rd, 4th century, translated the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate. And so that little expression, ek homo, was an expression that anybody who had been to church was very familiar with. And it became the title of numerous paintings uh, from the 4th, 5th century, right down to the present day. And uh, Zinzendorf, he entered into this art gallery, and there was this particular portrait of ek homo, uh, this painting, this rendering of the Lord Jesus with a crown of thorns as Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And underneath this painting, someone had penned these words. This I did for thee. What dost thou for me? And that was it. The Spirit of God got a hold of Zinzendorf. This I did for thee. What dost thou for me. Check this. Be very careful. Zinzendorf, upon seeing with the eyes of the heart the crucified Christ, upon contemplating and fully grasping and understanding for the first time in his life the, 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 the height of Christ's elevation and the subsequent depth of his humiliation and understanding for the first time in his life that this was for him, he was gripped. Understand this, please. He was not racked with guilt. He was overcome with love. It was through his understanding of the Lord Jesus, the height of his exaltation and what he left, what he surrendered, and the depth of his humiliation. Behold the man whereby he was handed over to be crucified at Golgotha. The Spirit of God got a hold of the heart of Zinzendorf at that moment, transformed the man. And from that moment, he lived in the service of others, in the name of Christ. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Simply because it's a wonderful illustration of the very thing Mark describes for us in the text we have just read. In the text we have just read, Mark really hammers home the exaltation of Christ and the humiliation of Christ and how this is to have a transformative effect upon us. And so as we immerse ourselves into the text, we can break it down into three sections as, as we wrestle with this idea, the text's main message. And the first, in the first section, we see something of the suffering of the cross. It begins in verse 32 and goes through to verse 34. And we read at the outset of verse 32 that they, this is Jesus and his disciples, perhaps a few others, they're on the road and they're traveling where? To Jerusalem. 
Jesus is a little ahead of them. He's walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. There's the first description we have of the people who are following him. But read on. And those who followed were afraid. And so these people are amazed. They are afraid. Why? I'm inclined to think it's because of what the Lord Jesus has already said about what is going to happen at Jerusalem. Turn back to chapter 8 and just look for a moment at verse 31. Mark 8, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now move into chapter 9 and look at verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. They don't fully understand what he is saying. They certainly don't grasp why he is speaking about suffering and what he means by rising again. But, but, but they know something is just around the corner. Uh, they know something is waiting around the bend. They know s- that something of great significance and magnitude is going to happen at Jerusalem. And so as they follow the Lord Jesus, as they're walking along the road, he has his, his gaze set toward Jerusalem. They're amazed and they are afraid. And now for the third time, he repeats what is going to befall him at Jerusalem. Look at what he says in verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. Now we need to get our minds around these verses. There's so much packed in there. Let me ask four questions. First is this. Uh, Where? Where are they going? We've already established this fact. They are on their way to the city of Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus has already made that clear, that he has a rendezvous. This is a divine appointment. This is in accordance with the eternal decrees of God, that he has a rendezvous with death in Jerusalem. When we come to the next chapter, chapter 11, the very first verse, what do we read? When they drew near to Jerusalem. And the rest of the book basically describes what befalls the Lord Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. So there's the answer to the question, where? Second question is this, who? Who is in view in this verse? Because he speaks the third person singular. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the son of Man, he's speaking in the third person singular, but he's referring to himself. He is taking this title, the Son of Man, and applying it directly to himself. When the disciples heard this title, Son of Man, they had an Old Testament context in which to place it. The Old Testament context is found in the book of Daniel. And it's found as part of an odd vision that Daniel has in the seventh chapter of his book. And in that vision, Daniel sees these four beasts come out of the waters. And the first beast is a a bear, is a lion. It represents the Babylonian Empire. The second beast is a bear. It represents the Persian Empire. The third beast is a leopard. It represents the Greek Empire. 
The fourth beast is simply a terrible beast. It doesn't look like anything known to man. It has ten horns. It is the Roman Empire and subsequent kingdoms. And what Daniel sees is that God wrenches dominion and authority from these kingdoms. Representative of what? Human authority, the kingdom of man. And then Daniel sees the following. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Where are they going? Jerusalem. Who is he speaking of in these verses? Himself. He describes himself as the Son of Man. Why? It is a further revelation of his identity, that he is the eternal Son of God. He is the eternal Word of God. He is the one in whom the Father, the Ancient of Days, will invest all authority in an everlasting kingdom. But what is going to happen? Before glory, there is what? There is suffering. There is a cross before the crown. And he describes what is going to happen to him, the Son of Man. What will happen to him at the hands of his creatures in Jerusalem. He will firstly be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. He will secondly be condemned to death, sentenced to death as a blasphemer. And thirdly, at the end of verse 33, they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. That's Pilate, that's the Romans. And then fourthly, into verse 34, they will mock him, they will spit on him, they will flog him, and they will kill him. But fifthly, right at the end of verse 34, and after three days, He will rise again. One more question. We know the where, Jerusalem. We know the who, the Son of Man. We know the what. He's going to be tried. He's going to be sentenced. He's going to be condemned. He's going to be killed. He will rise again. It begs the question, why? He doesn't answer the question here. But he does give us the answer in verse 45, right at the end of our text. Look there briefly for a moment. For even the Son of Man, there's that title again, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does he give? His life. And so it is his death at Calvary's cross of which he speaks here. He is giving his life. Why? As a ransom. We hear that word ransom, and we think in terms of a kidnapping, don't we? If someone is kidnapped, the kidnappers require that a ransom be paid. That's not the way in which it's used here. A ransom in New Testament times refers to slaves, that in order to to redeem and set free a slave, you could purchase that slave, purchase their liberty, and the price was called a ransom price. And so the Lord Jesus is going to give his life. He's going to suffer those things at Jerusalem, the Son of Man, the eternal Word of God, the eternal Son of God, because he's going to give his life as a ransom that is the purchasing price of the liberty for, anti in the Greek, that is instead of, or on behalf of many. And so here we have the answer to the question, why? That his crucifixion, what happens at Jerusalem, isn't an accident. It isn't something that takes him by surprise. He isn't simply setting a good example. No, this is the Lamb of God who was crucified before the foundation of the world according to the decree of of God. 
This is the word of God who became a man and walked on this earth for one specific purpose. It was to give his life as a ransom for many. And so here in these verses we have the suffering of the cross. Now we move into a second section, beginning in verse 35. And it goes through more or less to verse 40. And we can title this the essence of selfishness. The essence of selfishness. It's interesting that this is the third time that the Lord Jesus announces what's going to happen to him. We read the first two, chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 31, and now here's the third one. It's interesting to note the reaction to these three proclamations. In the first instance, back in chapter 8, the Lord Jesus says he's going to suffer. Peter stands to the forefront and basically says, may it never be. Basically, Peter is saying, you're crazy, Lord. This is never going to happen to you. In chapter 9, when he announces it again, he immediately asks the disciples what they have been discussing on the way. And they've been talking among themselves who is the greatest. And so he has to deal with their pride. And now we have this third instance of the Lord Jesus pointing to Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus pointing and revealing in very clear terms exactly, precisely what is going to happen to him. And what is the reaction on the part of the disciples? Why aren't they concerned with his welfare? Why aren't they overcome and overwhelmed by all of this talk of suffering? No, what is forefront in their minds is again what? Their own self-exaltation. And look at what we read in verse 35. James and John, two of the disciples, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And what's their request? Verse 37, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. We don't care which it is. James can be on the right, John on the left, John on the right, James on the left. We don't care. But the two of us, we know where we want to be. Uh, In your glory, in your kingdom. One of us wants to be at your right. One of us wants to be at your left. We want to be exalted with you. James and John have completely missed what? What the Lord Jesus has just declared. The Lord Jesus has just made it clear that suffering precedes glory. He has just made it clear that the cross precedes the crown. James and John have missed it entirely. All they're thinking of is the glory. All they're thinking of is the crown. All they're thinking of is their own exaltation. It's wonderful. I mean, the Lord Jesus, he is so patient with them in verse 38. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't ridicule them. He simply states, you do do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? What is the cup that he drinks? It's what he has just declared. His suffering. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What is his baptism? It is his baptism into the waters of God's judgment upon Calvary's cross. And so he has in view his suffering. 
He has revealed that the cross is the way to the crown. He is the Son of Man. He is the one who will, who will take the throne. He is the one in whom God will invest all authority and dominion and eternal kingdom. But that's coming. First, the cross. The cross before the crown. James and John, you're clueless. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to wear the crown? The, the, are you able to bear the cross prior to the crown? Are you able to endure the suffering prior to the glory? Look at their response, verse 39. I think we need to take it at face value. We are able. We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, uh, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And both James and John, they did suffer. Uh, They did bear their cross, so to speak. But verse 40. To sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Passive voice leaves us asking the question, prepared by whom? Prepared by the Father. My right and my left, that's in the Father's hands. The Father has determined that. And that isn't really what you should be concerned with, boys. What you should be concerned with is what I have just revealed, that I am calling you to a ministry of suffering. I am calling you to a life of hardship. I am calling you to pick up your cross and follow me. Are you able to follow me? It's quite alarming, isn't it, how James and John, and we dare not be too harsh on them, because in James and John and the disciples as a whole, we see a mirror. It's a mirror, a reflection of ourselves. And here are these men. They are preoccupied with what? Their own position, uh, their own exaltation. The Lord Jesus, in chapter 8 and again in chapter 9, he's already taken them down this road, addressing their pride. He's going, to, he's going to do it again in just a few days in the upper room. You think of John chapter 13 and 14, where the Lord Jesus uh, prostrates himself before the disciples, and he ends up doing what? Washing their feet. As I have just done to you, do Likewise, he's teaching them again this, this, this invaluable lesson concerning humility, and they're so slow in getting it. Even the other side of the cross, after the resurrection, as recorded in John chapter 21, as Jesus walks on the sea and as he restores Peter to fellowship, Peter, as he's caught in that pivotal moment of, of, of declaring his love and his devotion to the Lord Jesus, at one moment he turns around and he sees John following And his question is what? What about him, Lord? Peter, who cares about him? You focus on me. And yet there is these disciples riddled with pride and this desire to exalt themselves. And the Lord Jesus patiently, time and time again, dealing with their pride, pointing them to the cross and establishing this, this unavoidable reality, this unavoidable fact Let me repeat it again, that the cross precedes the crown. Do you understand that, Christian? I dare say we have a tough time understanding that in our prosperous society, especially in a society where we equate God's favor and blessing with material things. And sadly, we get a very skewed perspective of reality. And at times, get things all out of whack, all out of distortion. Friend, yes, there is a crown coming. It is the cross first. Yes, friend, glory and a kingdom is coming. But we are called to suffering first. 
Yes, exaltation is coming. But we have been called now to humiliation. The disciples do not get it. In them we have the essence of selfishness. We move into the third section, the essence of selflessness. So the second section, verses 35 through 40, the essence of selfishness. And now verses 41 through 45, the essence of selflessness. And so in verse 41, there's trouble brewing. When the ten heard it, so the rest of the disciples, when they heard this conversation, this discussion between James and John and Jesus, what's their reaction? They began to be indignant at James and John. Why are they annoyed? Why are they indignant? Are they indignant because they are humble and they are shocked that James and John would ever ask for such a thing? I highly doubt so. They are indignant. Why? Because James and John have beat them to the punchline. James and John have asked for the very thing that they have wanted to ask but have been too sheepish to ask for. And therefore they are indignant, annoyed at James and John. And so what does the Lord Jesus do? Verse 42, he calls them to him and he says to them, And what he gives now, beginning there in verse 42, right through to verse 45, is he gives them three examples. Um, He says, okay, you're you're visual learners, you 12. Well, let me give you three visual aids to help you understand what I am calling you to, to help you understand the essence, the nature of selflessness. And so here's visual aid number one. Here's example number one. I want to show you what true greatness is isn't like. I want to show you what true greatness isn't like. Verse 42, he called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. There's example number one. There is visual aid number one demonstrating what true greatness isn't Like, they live in Israel, territorially speaking. But they have been under Rome for a couple centuries now. And they have been under the domination of the Roman emperor. Uh, They know who the Roman emperor is. They know who Pilate is. They know what a centurion is. They know what the Roman legions are. They know how the Gentiles rule. They know how the Romans govern their empire. And they know how the Romans are preoccupied with power, prestige, wealth, influence. And what the Lord Jesus is saying is simply this. Look at what you know. There's a visual age right there. You're oppressors, those who have dominion over you. That is what true greatness is not like. Now he gives them a second example, visual aid number two. And it brings us into verse 30, 43. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Verse 44. And whoever would be first among you must be slave. And so just as you you know the Romans, and you know Pilate, and you know how they govern, and you know how they behave themselves, and you know how they are absorbed with self-exaltation, that is what true greatness is not like. Now, here's another visual aid. Here is what true greatness is like. Slave. And he's saying to them, you all know what a slave is. In the Roman Empire at this time, there are millions of slaves. 
my 12, you interact with slaves daily. You can't go through the day from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. You cannot go through a day without interacting with slaves, without encountering slaves, without seeing slaves. Do you understand that in that visual aid, in, in, in what all that is entailed in being a slave, you have in them the nature of what it really means to be great? What is he saying? To be great in his kingdom, to be great in his estimation, is to give oneself away in reckless abandonment in the service of others. It is to hold no rights. It is to possess no rights. It is to act and conduct oneself as a slave. The Lord Jesus says in the book of Luke, chapter 17, verse 10, when you have done, speaking to his disciples, When you have done all that you were commanded, say this, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Do you want to know how well uh, we've learned that lesson? I mean, do you really want to know? Here are a couple of questions. First is this, uh, how do I react when no one thanks me for what I do? Do I think I'm entitled to be thanked? A slave isn't thanked. A slave isn't even acknowledged. How do I react when someone actually treats me like a slave? Our answers to those questions actually reveal whether we get it or not. You, my 12, you look to Pilate and those centurions and those Romans and you think, that's what you think of in terms of glory. That's what you think of in terms of the, of the kingdom. You want to take power. You want to be exalted. Well, let, me, let us be perfectly clear right here at the outset. That is what true greatness is not like. The slaves, those who you walk over, those who you ignore, those who you wouldn't give the time of day to, That is true greatness in my kingdom. Now, he needs to give some motivation here. He's described what true greatness isn't like. He's explained what true greatness is like. We need need some impetus. We need some motivation. And that's what he gives now by a third visual aid, a third example. Verse 45, he points to himself. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so my 12, think of the height of my exaltation. I am the Son of Man. Think of who I am, the eternal Word of God, the eternal Son of God. Friends, think think in terms of Isaiah's vision in the book of Isaiah chapter 6 where he beholds the Lord in all his glory, seated upon his throne, The train of his robe filling the temple. The seraphim hovering around him declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The height of his exaltation. And now think, friends, of the depth of his humiliation. That the creator of all becomes a creature. That the Lord of all becomes subject 
to all. That the one who was in the form of God comes in the form of a servant, surrendering all his rights to give himself to purchase a people unto himself. Okay, so disciples, you've now got it. Uh, Romans over here, your, your Gentile leaders, rulers, that's what true greatness isn't like. Slaves running around, you see them all the time. That's what true greatness is like. You need a motivation to be like this and not that? Look to me and ponder the height of my exaltation and the depth of my humiliation. An author has written, though Jesus was rich, he became poor. Though he was king, he served. Though he was the greatest, he made himself the servant of all. He triumphed over sin, not by taking power, but by serving sacrificially. This is a complete reversal of the world's way of thinking. The world values power, recognition, wealth, and status. But the gospel creates a new kind of servant community with people who live out an entirely alternate way of being human. Of being human. The gospel points us to the Lord Jesus, the height of his exaltation, The depth of his humiliation tells us why. Because he gave himself as a ransom for us. And in so doing, rids us of our humility, cultivating in us selflessness and a willingness to give ourselves in the service of others in the name of Christ. Let me show you how important this is. If you're using the sermon notes, you'll see nine blanks there. So let me illustrate this in nine ways. There are many more besides, but I'll focus on these nine so that we're perfectly clear how this this selflessness which arises from this view of Christ, this understanding of Christ's humiliation, how necessary it is. Firstly, this is absolutely necessary for entering God's kingdom. It's necessary for entering God's kingdom. Look back at chapter 10, verse 15. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So how, what, what does it mean to believe? How do I obtain eternal life? How do I enter the kingdom of, of God? If I want an answer to that question, all I need to do is look at infants. And I see infants, if they're anything, they are what? They are completely dependent upon their parents. And they are helpless to provide for themselves. And they cry out in heartfelt dependence upon their mother, upon their father. Well, that is how you are to believe. That is how you are to rest in God, in the finished work of Christ. But here's our problem. We won't come to God like that until what? Until we've repented of our sin. We won't repent of our sin until we acknowledge our sinfulness. We won't acknowledge our sinfulness until we're convinced of what? Our unrighteousness. And so this need to come to the cross continually and be broken by the Lord Jesus, the height of his exaltation, the depth of his humiliation, cultivating in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that childlike faith and dependence in God. Secondly, it is absolutely necessary for keeping peace among God's people. Look at chapter 9, verse 51, verse 50. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves 
and be at peace with one another. There the Lord Jesus again is addressing the disciples' pride. And he's explaining that they must mortify their pride if there's ever going to be peace among them. And so too we realize that peace is impossible when self reigns. Peace among brethren, peace in the home, peace in the church is impossible when self reigns. And so the need to mortify pride, the need to become a slave of all, only possible in the light of Calvary's cross, Christ's, the height of his exaltation, the depth of his humiliation. Thirdly, it's necessary for mortifying sin. Look again at chapter 9, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. There the Lord Jesus is speaking by way of hyperbole. And he's, he's exaggerating for the sake of emphasis that we need to get radical with our sin and the root cause of our sin, our inner pride. And we need to to mortify it. We need to kill it. Where does that desire come from? Where does the motivation come from daily to deal with our sin? It comes from the cross. It comes from a fresh view of the Lord Jesus, the height of his exaltation and the depth of his humiliation. Fourthly, it's necessary for tearing down idols. Look at chapter 10, verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it so difficult? Because wealth can become an idol. Just as power can become an idol. Just as notoriety and fame can become idols. Just as our appearance and beauty can become idols. Just as social status can become an idol. Just as our homes can become an idol. Just as recreation can become an idol. We will make idols out of just about anything whereby we will usurp the position of God with something else setting our affections upon it. But what is the only thing that can remove our hearts from idols? See, idols won't simply go away. And idols can't simply be torn out. Idols must be replaced. We replace the idols of the heart with Calvary's cross and this view of the Lord Jesus Christ, this one who gave himself as a ransom for many. Number five, it is necessary for following Jesus. Look at chapter 8, verse 34. Here the Lord Jesus lays down the terms of discipleship. He called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. In other words, the Lord Jesus is saying that we must be prepared to lose all. We must be prepared to abandon all. We must be prepared to sacrifice all in our pursuit of him. Why? Because he alone is worth it. Where do we see that worth? Where is that love for him cultivated? Where is that desire Kindled. It is at Calvary's cross where we see how much he gave up for us. Number six, it is absolutely necessary for honoring God in marriage. Look at chapter 10, verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We have in marriage the gospel embedded. 
in that relationship between husband and wife, that original relationship between Adam and Eve. And we see in the relationship between husband and wife, the husband giving himself for his wife. And in that relationship, we are pointed to the essence of the gospel. The Lord Jesus, who gave himself for his bride, gave himself for his people. How do we honor God in the marriage, marriage context? We do so by continually bringing ourselves to Calvary's cross. Behold and seeing the Lord Jesus and what he gave up for his bride. What he surrendered for his people. What he sacrificed for his church. We, we, we meditate and we reflect upon the height of his exaltation and the subsequent depth of his humiliation. Number seven, it is absolutely necessary for trusting God in all of life's circumstances. Look at chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. There he is addressing the disciples' doubt. He's addressing their worry. He is addressing their faithlessness. They have lost sight of who he is. And because they have lost sight of who he is, they're they're fretting. And they've worked themselves up into a frenzy. And they're worrying and overcome by anxiety. Worry arises from arrogance. When we worry, when we worry and are overcome and fall prey to anxiety. Although we would never dare vocalize it or express it, here is what we are thinking subconsciously. We know what is best, and God is clueless. That is the disciples in this context. And he reminds them, all things are possible with God. Your faith is to be fixed on God, who he is, and what he has promised And each time we come to Calvary's cross, each time we come to Golgotha, each time we behold the one who was in the form of God and came in the form of a servant, the one who gave himself upon Calvary's cross, we are are drawn to him. We, We are engaged by him. And we are empowered to do what? Live by faith in him. Number eight. It is absolutely necessary for ministering to others. Look at chapter 9, verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. How else am I going to give up time? How else are you going to give up time for the benefit of others? How else are we going to forgo our comfort, our ease, our leisure, our entertainment for the good of others. How else are you going to sign up month after month for extended session when you no longer have children, it no longer really applies to you, and is absolutely no benefit to you? How are we going to engage in the most mundane of tasks and thankless services? We only do so in the shadow of Calvary's cross, where we see the Lord Jesus becoming a slave We see the Lord Jesus becoming a servant. We see the Lord Jesus surrendering all rights and giving himself for the good of his people. And number nine, the last one. It is absolutely necessary for leading God's people. And that brings us back to our text. 
brings us back to the 44th verse. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. See, the Lord Jesus is training the disciples. He's got a church to build, and these men are going to be the foundation of this church. But they need to learn what it will mean to minister in that church. They must learn what it will mean and what it will look like to shepherd his sheep. They must learn uh, how they are to govern, how they are to direct, how they are to guide. It is not in this preconceived notion they have deriving from them looking at the Romans who exercised dominion over them. It is how? By looking at the slaves who are trampled upon among them. If you desire to be great, if you desire to serve, then you must, he is saying to the twelve, become a slave of all. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, There is only one thing that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. Hear this, friend. This is the starting point for obeying every command. It is the starting point for mortifying every sin. It is the starting point for healing every marriage, forgiving every offense, mending every relationship, resolving every conflict, enduring every trial, and surrendering every right. A clear view of the height of his exaltation and the depth of his humiliation at Calvary's cross. Our Father, we pray again this day that you give us eyes to see. And we pray that you would bend our wills. We pray that you would come with freshness breathing upon our hearts by your word, teaching us and instructing us and shaping us according to your holy word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We praise you for that ransom price paid on our behalf. We praise you because we've been purchased by his blood. And now we are heirs of you and co-heirs with Christ. Bless what we have heard this day. Bless it to our minds. Bless it to our hearts. And bless it to the furtherance of your kingdom among us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.